0: This is SFNet Presents in the Know, with host Barry Bobro, sponsored by Hilco Global. Welcome everyone to the podcast series SFNet Presents in the Know with Barry Bobro. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Barry Bobro. I've spent the past 37 years working in banking, most of it in debt capital markets, and most of that in leveraged loans. I've managed highly successful loan syndication teams at several large banks. I've also been very engaged in the asset-based lending market and for many years have been in a leadership position in the primary trade association for asset-based lending, the Secured Finance Network. I really want to thank the entire team at SFNET for all of their support in making the In the Know podcasts a reality. My work in asset-based lending led me to originate a conference with the Secured Finance Network, known as Asset-Based Capital or ABCC, now in its 16th year. ABCC is not about asset-based lending, but rather is focused on the important insight and perspectives that participants in and around the asset-based lending market want and need to know about. The topics we cover have broad appeal to everyone who is engaged in the secured lending market. The In the Know podcasts will be in the same spirit as ABCC. I'll be bringing you a series of conversations with thought leaders on important topics impacting secured lending. These brief but engaging discussions will give you insight and perspectives critical to being more successful in your businesses by keeping you in the know. Before I begin, I want to thank you for watching and listening and to let you know that SFNet and I both welcome your feedback on today's discussion, as well as your suggestions for future topics and speakers. Today's podcast is dedicated to the direct lending market, a critical topic for anyone involved in asset based lending for several reasons. First and foremost, is because of the high degree of integration between asset-based and related debt markets. Without the ability to access other debt markets to fill in the remainder of the capital structure, many asset-based loans simply couldn't happen. That applies to acquisitions, refinancings, and restructurings. Second, is that the direct lending market is both a competitor and a collaborator to the asset-based market. Understanding the liquidity, Credit and return issues in private debt are critical to the asset-based lenders trying to understand how to successfully generate and execute transactions. Lastly, the relative attractiveness of private debt versus broadly syndicated debt is something that will impact capital structures in future transactions, particularly given the changing market dynamics in the current environment. My guest today is my good friend, Randy Schwimmer. Uh, Senior Managing Director. I'm going to make sure I get this right, Randy. Senior Managing Director, co-head of Senior Lending at Churchill Asset Management LLC, and founder. The most important part: founder and publisher of the Lead Left. I've known Randy for longer than uh, either one of us cares to talk about, uh, and I've really watched with great interest as he has turned his his passion, which is talking markets, into his his profession, uh, working for working for Churchill, and really via the Lead Left. Randy is the authoritative source for information, that's how I view it anyway, the authoritative source for information on middle market leverage lending. Uh, and Randy, thank you so much for joining today. So, start. Barry,
1: it is, it's great to be with you. I'm honored to be, I think, your first uh, guest on- Vic- Victim, uh, victim. On the Barry Bobro Show. So, thank you so much for that. And I was actually counting the years. So, we, we uh, started together in 1993 the desk at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, so that's a relationship almost going back 30 years, and since I've um, only been married for 15, um, <laughs> I, consider, I consider you to be uh, pretty close, closest family.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks, Randy. So, um, Randy, I, I did my best to talk about the lead left and how I think about. It. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Churchill and the lead left before we before we yeah. start?
1: So, uh, I was actually an English major in college, and I like to write, um, and it turned out that. Uh, passion has served me well being in the middle market uh, for my entire career, because the middle market historically was less of a transparent market. It was these were smaller deals, Barry, as you remember, that we would work on companies that were unrated, that didn't their loans didn't trade, and trying to explain how the middle market worked, who bought the loans, who financed the companies, who was involved uh, in in these in these rather you know, esoteric kinds of strategies required some explanation, and so I decided pretty early on in my career to uh, to be out there talking about the metal market, what it is, how it works, uh, and and really how it works relative to the public markets. Little did I know, um, you know, 40 years later that you and I be sitting here um, talking about an asset class which. Today has been estimated to be around trillion dollars uh, as a as a total universe private credit total, including direct lending and venture capital and um, subordinated debt and other things. But it's now rivaling the broadly syndicated market. So, uh, and frankly, high yield high yield high yield bonds. So, what where Churchill fits into all this? So, we've been doing direct lending since two thousand and six. We started. Uh, actually, it's a portfolio company of a private equity firm. And in 2015, we, we came over to the TIAA uh, platform, which then merged soon after with Nuveen, which is a multi-billion dollar asset manager. Today, the, the total assets under management uh, of our parent company is probably about $1.3 trillion. Um, and they have about $250 billion dedicated to alternatives which over the last five to seven years has been an increasingly interesting asset class uh, to be literally an alternative to public equities, fixed income, and so forth. And it was thought uh, by the parent company at the time that, they, that we started with them as their direct lender um, that it would be an interesting alternative, frankly, for their investors. And here we are seven years later, um, uh, having raised a significant amount of capital, we are now 40 billion in size from a capital perspective. And we essentially do private capital. So we do senior debt, we do junior capital, we do co-investing of equity. And we actually have a significant business as a direct LP in the private equity funds uh, whose portfolio companies we finance. So we actually are clients um, to those sponsors. That's and right. We get treated, treated pretty well. Um, the, so the lead left has been kind of our thought leadership piece I've been writing The lead left itself uh, since March of 2008. I started it because markets started to get a little choppy. Uh, Does that sound familiar, Barry? Uh, (laughs) Markets started to get a little choppy, and our investors in those those days, including our uh, sponsor clients, were asking, you know, what's happening out there? And so I started writing this piece, which has now grown today to uh, be distributed to about 50,000 subscribers. Including private equity, private credit bankers, M and uh, specialists, and so forth. So it's pretty widely read. And um, the thing that's cool about it is that we have about a dozen different content partners, like you know S and LPC and Refinitive uh, L P C and D L D Direct Lending uh, Group that deals that that publish a lot of stuff. We also have partnerships with PitchBook and Private. Uh, Dead investor, and so if you go on the website, and any f- friend of Barry's is going to be uh, free, will get free uh, access to the Lead Left. So you just, heard it here, uh, folks. Send send me an email at randy schwimmer, randydutchswimmerchurchillam or theleadleft.com and uh, just say that you're an FOB, a friend of Barry's, and you will get um, free access. So uh, that content comes in, and there's really no place on earth that you can go to to get all of this information in one place so we're pretty pretty proud of it um but look you know you've been in this business as long as i have it, this is a time where people need uh direction right i mean that's why this podcast is so exciting because you and i can just talk freely about what's going on so
0: let, let's let's back it up so with all of that as as preamble we're you know we've got uh inflation supply chain issues negative sentiment from both consumers as well as uh, ceos corporations uh, analysts, there's just a lot of information for markets to digest where we are right now. Where are we from your perspective?
1: Uh, I have been absorbing every piece of information that I can get my hands on from economists to, you know, journalists who write, you know, good things about this to uh, other lenders, frankly, and talking a lot about what's going on. Um, two things. One is we know that uh, we're in a bit of a, a battle or a race for time right now with the Fed. Um, being, you know, at kind of a 1.5%, 1. 175, wherever Fed funds is after having just uh, jacked up rates by 75 basis points. Um, and, you know, that's the, apparently the, the, the most they've ever raised in one, at one point, at in, one session. a long time. That's right. Since yeah. 94. Um, so they're in a little bit of a race because inflation, the May numbers just came out uh, for last Friday, you know, 8.6 percent or something like that—the uh, highest uh, since uh, you know for 40 years that you won something like that. So, I think that race is clearly ultimately going to be won by the Fed. Right? The question is, how long will it take? And in raising rates, will they trigger a recession? And so, you're seeing in the markets uh, continuing today, this concern that this will end badly in a hard landing and that the Fed will have to raise rates so rapidly and at such a high level that it will uh, cause a recession. So that's what you're seeing in the market right now. Now the, the uh, financing markets, let's take all three of them, the high yield bond market, that pretty much has been shut down over the last month or two. Primary issuance kind of came to a grinding halt um and you know they they're doing a few deals out there but for the most part it's it's a market that's been shut down the leveraged loan market has continued but what happened there was that the um because it's a traded market it's a liquid market the secondary loan market the the prices that were being reflected in that market over the last couple months which were you know, starting, say, in, you know, before the Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis started at, say, you know, 98, 98 and a half, traded down to kind of 95 level on average. And in some cases with some businesses that were uh, more cyclical in order to get those deals done, they had to price them down to you know, the 80s in order to get them sold. And the result of that was that the overall yields in the leveraged loan market has spiked. So, you know, three, four, five months ago, they were, you know, 4%. You could get a single B, a strong single B done in the leveraged loan market for a kind of a 4% plus to 5% yield, maybe. Today, it's more like 8%, right? Now, if you contrast that with the third market, which is the private credit market, which doesn't trade, uh, and therefore is less correlated to what's going on in terms of uh, headline risk, Uh, we're pretty much priced about where we've been. Now, in some cases, you've seen deals getting done 25 basis points wide or maybe 50 basis points at most wide of where they were done kind of pre-crisis. But for the most part, because the capital that's being uh, provided by the uh, participants such as ourselves in direct lending is locked in, both our assets and liabilities are locked in long term. We have LPs ourselves, um, and these LPs have committed to a variety of funds, in Churchill's case, CLOs, BDCs, separate managed accounts, commingled funds, that all have long term lockup periods. And so we have the ability to go out during times of crisis and commit to financings and hold significant amounts of capital. We can hold three, four, five hundred million dollars per deal and not have that be over a 40 billion dollar portfolio not have that uh representing any kind of concentration risk and yeah it's it's, not-
0: Randy, it's interesting because you've got a, a different supply and demand dynamics in the in the, the broadly traded markets versus private and maybe for the first time that i remember that the there was always a pricing premium in the in the direct lending business uh, and maybe a little bit more structure but it feels like so much money has been raised that they're really, if, if not on top of each other, probably more attractive in the direct lending market today.
1: Right, and so, so what's ironic, Barry, about this period is that over the last seven years, we've had a number of investors who, uh, including our parent company, who has sought more exposure to private credit because it's less correlated. And now we're in a period where, you know, some investors are looking at these headlines and coming to us and saying, why are, you know, why are you trading lower than the broadly syndicated market? And I have to explain because we are less correlated, that is part of the, the challenge. And so going to the other, your question, the, you know, if you're looking at opportunities in the broadly syndicated market right now, at say 8% yield or, or even higher, um, there is an attractiveness to that, right? I mean, there's no question relative to the much more stable direct um, lending market. And in fact, going back to eight oh nine 09, when we had a uh, broadly syndicated capability within Churchill, today it's it's in the Nuveen business but in those days you know we looked at the leveraged loan market and we, and we actually took opportunities to buy some paper in that mm-hmm. immediately early 2010 period the problem was you know we may have bought 3 400 million of um, heavily discounted strong single B paper and the problem is it didn't last that trade didn't last cuz liquidity came into the market as the fed rate you know injected more liquidity and you know, by March or April of twenty two thousand and ten, the trade was gone. And so, I suspect the same thing will happen in this current market. We're seeing some opportunities to buy assets right now, but my guess is that it won't last. And that's the problem with with using the BSL market as a strategy to to buy at a discounted, to buy these discounted uh, deals. It, mm-hmm. It's very hard to scale that. Now, you know, in, in our market, on the other hand, we will. Basically, be doing the same kind of call it seven to eight percent yielding paper. The same paper we've been doing for the last 15 years, we're going to continue doing through this crisis uh, with very good private equity sponsors. So, all the loans that we do and all the junior capital that we provide. So, we do, um, you know, all four classes of capital, as I mentioned, up and down the balance sheet all of that is with private equity backed companies so you know they're looking to put money to work in this in this market and you've dealt with PE firms they've got dry powder they need to deploy
0: but how let's let's go over there for a second so you know hundreds of millions billions of dollars of so-called dry powder I've seen different estimates but approaching a trillion dollars and and yet m a volume is off 75 percent year over year or thereabouts right now because of a, a variety of factors First of all, it's harder to price, a deal when you don't know what the EBITDA is, you know, so you have to make a bet on the economic environment. But secondly, I, I think you have uh, sellers whose expectations are probably based to a large extent on where their stock was trading, uh, a, you know, a number of months ago, and now it's down substantially. You know, so it's harder to get the deal to come together. So how how will private equity deploy all that money that's sitting there? They don't want to give it back, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. So what's happening, as you might imagine, given those dynamics, is that for the businesses that these sponsors are interested in, purchase price multiples are not going down. And it'll be interesting to see, Barry, in a if we get into a period of more of a systemic recession, and it's still, I think, less than 50% that that's going to happen. And even if we have some kind of recession or downturn or slowdown, I think it's going to be shallow. But even, even if we get into a real one, the, the dynamics of private equity sponsors, certainly with the sectors that we focus on, so more defensive businesses like healthcare, technology, software, distribution companies, uh, specialty um, uh, in industrials or manufacturing, uh, anything really that has been thriving over the last three or four years, is probably gonna continue to thrive in this environment. If you made it through COVID as as we did on on the portfolio side without having any any hiccups, um, as a private equity firm, you're gonna continue that trade. And what we're seeing anecdotally, Barry, is that the properties that sponsors are focused on buying are not going cheaper, they're actually going for higher purchase price multiples. We just saw a deal with a client um, who we thought was gonna win the transaction at an 18 times multiple, okay? Just to give you a sense, and this is a relatively small company, but it was a really good company, and they lost it to another sponsor that paid 28 times, okay? Now, that just sounds completely crazy, right? Um, But if you're a private equity sponsor that has significant capital, that's looking to make realizations, that's on fund number six, that wants to raise fund number seven beginning in September, has to make one more acquisition, and they've got an opportunity to do that, they figure, okay, if I overpay a little bit, that's okay. I'll put some add-on acquisitions to the platform to sort of blend down my overall purchase price multiple, and I'll be okay five years from now. That's That's what they're thinking. Will that work? Who knows? But if that dynamic continues now, me as a senior debt lender, that's great for me. That's great news because I've got all this cash equity below me. Um, but it'll be interesting to your point w- whether or not the private equity multiples are going to continue to go up in this environment
0: versus the public market yeah. multiples, yeah. which are clearly not. Randy, uh, one, one of the big differences, I think, between where we are now and maybe the, the last recession, which lasted about you know two days and it was in the early stages of the pandemic, is... At that point in time, uh, the the government—not just our government, but but governments around the world—had a lot more, a few more bullets in their chamber uh, to 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 use, and they did. They deployed, you know, substantial uh, easing uh, and 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 government money coming in, which kind of leads us to where we are now. But in the current environment, the the Fed is trying to tamp down inflation, which means it won't. If it does result in recession, it will not uh, be as quick to try to solve the recession with additional liquidity. But that that to me means you've got distress in companies that we just haven't seen uh, in, 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 in a long time. How do you think that the direct lending, the, the private debt market reacts to that situation versus the broadly syndicated market? So it, it, these are very different
1: markets in the mechanics of the way they handle portfolios. And uh, we're doing a, a special edition of the lead left starting this week actually on portfolio construction, because we're getting that exact same question from investors. And w- w- what's interesting about how the BSL market works, as you know, is that it's comprised of industry specialists in different sectors, so gaming, entertainment, uh, aerospace, uh, and so forth, uh, as well as you know housing and um, manufacturing industrials. And the result of that, including energy, frankly, and natural resources and commodities and and other cyclicals. But the difference in the large gap market is that these are specialists who understand and focus on the very large public issuers of credit. So these are businesses that have been around for a long, long time, hundreds of millions of dollars of EBITDA, significant critical mass. Um, and, and the way that they manage portfolios is, you know, they, they understand over decades the behavior of these very large companies through a number of business cycles. Plus these, these loans and the bonds are all liquid. So if there's an issue uh, with some of these companies, the portfolio managers can trade in and out. And that's what you're seeing right now, mostly trading out, but there's, there's definitely profit taking as well. In the direct lending market, you can't trade in and out because they're illiquid, they're not rated, these are small loans. It's really a buy and hold strategy. So for direct lenders like ourselves, we know once we, once we do the deal we own the loan, we own it for a long period of time. So what we want to make sure of, we can't trade out of it if there's a problem, so we have to pick sectors that we believe over long periods of time will be okay. And that's why I mentioned the healthcare and defensive sectors like technology and software um, and the result of that was that when we went into COVID, and by the way, we didn't know COVID was coming. And that's the difference between the current crisis and that's crisis true. two years ago. You remember, you probably left your office, Barry, that Friday, March 8th or whatever it was, thinking, oh, I'm not even going to have to water my plants. That's
0: right. that's right.
1: That's right. A couple of weeks and, you know, a couple of years you know, later, you come back. And so... But Plants
0: are not doing very well. Uh, no, mine are either. But yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, what's interesting now is that we've been seeing this inflation crisis building for at least a year, and now that it's happening, people are freaking out. Even though actually, what's happening is good news because the, the Fed is is tackling it. And by the way, I do think that inflation is starting to come down, but it's at such high levels right now that it's um, and it's not going to come down as quickly as people thought. So, so I think that for direct lenders such as ourselves, when we make a bet on a, uh, on a portfolio company, and it's not a bet, it's a, you know, a very well-considered and thoughtful underwriting, with a private equity sponsor backing it that, that we trust and, and invest with, um, we, we know that we're stuck with that loan for a long time. And so the result of that is that for direct lenders, um, the, the commitment that they make to both the borrower and to the private equity sponsor, involves a partnership. And and that partnership is one of the reasons over time, and you've seen these figures, that the smaller loans actually do better in terms of defaults and losses than the larger ones because of that collaboration between the small lender groups who are all buy and hold, and therefore they want to cooperate with the sponsor, and the sponsor who owns the business and doesn't want their value to go to zero, and so they're willing to do whatever they need to do to fix the problem in the BSL market um, it's more challenging because you have lenders who may have bought into the loan at 50 cents on the dollar right. because it was trading at 50 cents and all they care is getting out at 60 or 70 or 80 not getting out at par, which, you know, for those of us who co- go in at 98 or 99, and getting out as par is critical. So I think the dynamics are very different, which I believe speaks to the benefits of the asset class through difficult times as we're seeing right now. It's just the optics of, uh, seeing where prices are going that, that make it a little bit less palatable.
0: Randy, our, our time is almost over. And I, I wanted to give you one more uh, different question because you've just completed a, 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 a lengthy series on ESG. And just actually right around the same time that you completed it, there seems to have been a number of uh, things written around uh, some of the perils of ESG not done well. Some of the regulators are focusing more on it. I wonder if you want to give us kind of a postscript on, yeah. on that. Thank you for that
1: question, and uh, again, for uh, FOBs, the Friends of Barry, uh, we're going to make the, uh, both that special series and all the ones we're doing free, free to you. So that series, um, which we called uh, Why ESG Matters, I did in part because investors were asking for it, and a lot of investors wanted to know what not only what Churchill was doing, what Naveen was doing um, as a leader in the ESG space, but also... You know what is what's going on that we should know about, and so, and to be honest, Barry, I didn't know a lot about ESG other than you know environmental social governance. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew that it was social and governance, I knew environmental. Um, but I started doing a lot of reading, a lot of homework, talking to experts as we do, frankly, um, a lot of the left, and actually, you know, we featured you several times, Barry, when we were talking about asset based lending. I went to the master for that. Um, so with ESG, what I learned was two things. One, uh, there is a long history, in, not only in the United States, but in the world, regarding um, sensitivity about things in the environment, things uh, with regard to how treat people are treated, um, and also how companies are managed. And in each of those situations, you can trace back many, many years, threads of events that have made what we're now looking at is something called ESG, really, really important. So this did not just arise because some regulator said, you know, hey, you, know, you need to do this, or some, even some investors saying you need to do that. This has come uh, after decades, and in some cases, um, you know, centuries of development and concern over how we treat the planet, how we treat each other, um, and how we treat our sort of communal organizations perfect example on on environment is uh, something, you know, that you may remember in the 1970s, the ozone, the the hole in the ozone layer, right? And this scientists were alarmed because um, above, I think it was above the North Pole, where the ozone layer was thinnest, it started to evaporate, they didn't know why and they traced it to a significant amount of fluorocarbons, which they traced to spray cans for hairspray, which of course I don't use anymore. But at the t- time, we, you know, um, we didn't understand it, but they banned fluorocarbons, and guess what? The ozone layer repaired itself. It, w- it was a small example of how um, you know, we saw that crisis in, in climate or in the environment when it fixed it um, as a result of human action and human intervention. So there are ways that we can fix these things. What's happened today, to your point, is it's become political. And the regulators have stepped in in a big way. Politicians have stepped in in a big way. Um, Sovereign uh, countries have stepped in in a big way. And the result of that has been real concern about how you measure whether or not you're being green or green-friendly or environmentally friendly. And it is people are discovering it's very hard, number one, to measure this stuff. And number two, you're finding as a result of some of the Uh, things in the news is that some organizations have been accused of so-called greenwashing, saying, hey, you know, our fund is is green when it really isn't. And so you're seeing a clampdown on this. Now, the the problem is people are therefore throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They're basically saying, oh, well, somebody's cheating. And so therefore, ESG doesn't make any sense. The reality is it does make sense. There's real reasons to do it. And I think if you start to look at some of the benefits to companies that actually treat people well, treat the environment well, and um, run their companies well, that those businesses over time will thrive. And the businesses that don't treat the people well, don't treat the environment well, and don't um, manage their companies well will not thrive. That's generally the thesis. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, over time, the more scrutiny and the more frankly skepticism on ESG, the better. Because what will happen is the real, the authentic uh, nature of what we're trying to do—we as you know, human beings—in terms of investing and growing businesses will come out. And actually, um, you know, we 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 have a partnership with Kohlberg Capital, which is one of the top private equity firms in the country, um, to go out to other private equity firms with a template, basically saying, "Hey, you know, as you th- guys think about your investments." characterize the various elements of ESG using a template like this. And I think the more traction we get on that kind of thing where um, private equity firms who, as you know, provide significant amount of growth to the middle market and therefore to uh, to the country, I think that could be a real game changer long-term. So um, it's something that we're gonna to continue to write about and think about, yeah. um, looking forward to publishing more stuff. And I'd love to, down the road, talk to you more about, about that as a topic. I think it's an important
0: one. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for that. We're, we're out of time, and I, since you offered up a free subscription to everybody that, that listens to this, I hope that they take you up on that and listen in particular to your recent series on ESG, which I thought was really thoughtful, really well done. Randy, it's great to see you, and thanks so much for joining us for the inaugural edition of In the Know with Barry Bobro, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon.
1: Thanks, Barry, it's been a treat and a pleasure.
0: I think Randy hit on three very important themes in his remarks today. First, is that the private debt market is much more functional, predictable and attractive than the broadly syndicated market for bonds and institutional term loans in today's world. It's therefore expanding at a very rapid rate. This appears to be the landscape for the foreseeable future, given the underlying causes of the disruption to the public markets. Second, is that when restructurings occur, as they inevitably will, The perspective of a direct lender will be very different from that of the broadly syndicated markets because of the lack of a liquid secondary market. This means that the same direct lenders making the initial loan are much more likely to be involved in any workout or restructuring activity versus the investors in a broadly syndicated loan. Lastly, Randy's comments on ESG are important to consider, and I encourage everyone to take Randy up on his offer to become subscribers to the lead left and listen to his recent series on ESG. We're in the infancy of ESG, and while it may be difficult to predict the definitions of ESG loans and the speed of transformation, the path seems plain, and it's something we should all become more knowledgeable about as soon as we can. I'd like to close with a special thank you to Hilco for sponsoring the In the Know podcast. With me, your host, Barry Bobrow.